Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi, before we bring in our guest, you missed last week, so you must have so much Bill's shit talk built up for me, combined with the fact that our teams are playing this weekend. So let's just get that out of the way. Just get it off your chest. Let's go. Well, I don't want to speak for myself on this. Let me let me go to the tape here. Okay, 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 okay. Okay. All right. If if we win this weekend, I'm coming in next week and I'm playing Tech Nine Red Kingdom. So uh, I just discovered this on my way into the Bill Stadium, and now I can't stop listening to it. It's really the one of the best songs I think ever made. I'm surprised it didn't get a Grammy. This is just to give the man <laughs> this credit. This is Benny the Butcher from 2021. Now, I do have to admit, he says, talk is cheap, meet us in the playoffs. And we did meet you guys in the playoffs and things didn't quite work out. But You and I were there for that one. We were there. You know, uh, yeah. the poor people who listen to this show for the politics and don't like football, like, I appreciate that they stick through some of this in the fall with that none of that is relevant at all let's go to let's let's bring in a guest and then we'll talk trash so we'll we'll bring in a guest who is relevant and then we'll all together talk about things that aren't relevant our guest is v spear v is the host and creator of tiktok's under the desk news with over 2.7 million subscribers under the desk news offers 60 second daily wrap-ups of current events political analysis and special interest stories explained V is also the host of V Interesting, a Limonada Media original podcast. The show airs twice weekly and seeks to get beyond the headlines, catching you up on what happened after the story was trending. V, I was fortunate enough to be a guest on your show uh, during my book tour. And I'll be honest, because I'm not hip and don't have TikTok, I didn't really know anything about you. And then I did the show and I was like, that was delightful. I had a wonderful time. And then I mentioned it to Grace, our producer. And she was like, wait, you were on with V, like under the desk V? And everybody I mentioned it to got super excited. And that's when I found out that I had actually met a very famous and notably like culturally notable and important person. So uh, I'm thrilled to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yes, you were on the nice side of the news, as I'm known on TikTok. Uh, and Ravi, yeah. good to meet you too. Go Bills. There big you go. Time. Thank Let's you. hope there's no coins in Arrowhead Stadium. Oh that really got us last time. Yeah, what, what, a, what a dumb here? rule. What a dumb rule. <laughs> First dumb of all, rule. wasn't expecting backup here, but I know the Bills are America's team right now. So oh, oh, I'm, I'm up here in Rochester. So oh, I'll, shit, I'll be in really? Bills Stadium. I did I'll not know Bills that Stadium. about you. I was in Canandaigua. 
this past week. Oh, right on. And I was in Rochester. Well, Lovely I'm place. Be at the game Lovely on place. The thirtieth. So if you're coming back up, I'll be. Is the Packers at the stadium on the third Packers game? Oh, I'll be yeah. there too. I think so. Let's let's link oh, up. That'll good. be let's great. Meet in the parking lot. I'm literally. Tables. I need to create a sports podcast, by the way, so I can do tax write-offs for all of these trips to see the bills that I've been doing <laughs> this year. But I just have to say, the people of Western New York, and this is not Bill's propaganda. I truly believe this. I've lived in a lot of places. I've lived down south. I've lived in D.C., Chicago. The people of Western New York are the most friendly people I have ever met. There's so many people who are so welcoming in your town. So shout out to Rochester and Western New York. Love you people. What the hell Absolutely. is happening? This is an ambush. <laughs> I told you, it's it's the nice side lovely of the news. Place. It's addictive. Lovely it's place. a lovely place. Bill's <laughs> Mafia. I didn't even realize this. Now I feel even better oh, of course. about playing that song, which I'm sure, Jason, you'll hear a lot over the years now that I've discovered this thing. It's almost like, I guess, yeah, if like, if True discovers some weird, you know, new cartoon or something, you'll never, you'd probably never hear the end of it. That's, that's what this is for me now. The Baby Shark version for adult it's, Bills Oh, fans. okay. You pulled, the Baby Shark was a solid reference because there's a lot of Baby Shark going yeah. on in this house right now with Bella. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk some trash and there is nothing trashier to discuss this week then Kanye, where where do we start, Robbie? Jason, I have a question for you. He's saying, Kanye West, that Jews control the media. If that's true, we should have millions of listeners by this point, Jason. Don't we? We do, yeah. right? No, we don't. Yeah. Okay, well. Because uh, you, well, I mean, you control the media, I take it. it I yeah. do, and it is exhausting, I have yeah. to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I, I thought about this this week, and I think I even tweeted that I was planning to leave. I still am planning to leave Kanye in my workout playlist, but I figured that's okay because he's not really getting the credit for that. It's us Jews because it's media and we control it. So I think it's okay. Well, if people are confused about what we're talking about, I guess the basics here are that Kanye West wore a White Lives Matter shirt. I think think on Tucker Carl, did... V, if you you you're the you're the actual uh, bringer to the people of news here. Like, what what really happened? So he was on Tucker Carlson and he was spewing a lot of the Tucker favorites, uh, replacement theory, white lives matter, all of that kind of stuff. It was incredibly unusual interview overall. And I think one of the things that my folks have been talking about is, you know, you're looking at Kanye and everyone's saying he's mentally ill. He can't be trusted, but he's a billionaire. And and there was this, you know, idea that he's a genius and whether you subscribe to that or not is really on you. But what folks are saying now is this is really a great example of the difference between the way we treat male mentally ill celebrities and female mentally ill celebrities. Because if he were Britney Spears, he'd be back in that conservatorship. And that's what everyone is saying. Like, how are we, you know, allowing this person to be exploited and leveraged if they are mentally ill and giving them a place to espouse these terrible theories and these really dangerous rhetoric and then backing it up by going, well, he's a genius. You know, that's that's upsetting. Whereas. Mm You know, with other folks, we're like they're mentally ill to exploit them, to put them on television is to put them and the rest of the people who listen to them in danger. And uh, yeah, so it's it just ugh, it just all feels very, very icky. Well, and the exploitation part is I think what you're referencing is a lot of people feel like what this is, is it's like the right wing using a black man to propagate white supremacy. Right. Yeah. Supremacy. Yeah. White. White. Am I doing this right? They're trying to prove racism isn't real. It's the Thank same you. thing that they do with Clarence Thomas. Well, how could racism be real if Clarence Thomas agrees with these, you know, historically? They're like, we laws? have a black friend. 
Right. <laughs> yes. To layer in just like the basic facts here is he went on, he wore this White Lives Matter shirt, Puff Daddy, P. Diddy criticized him for it. Kanye then came back with like a implying that Puff Daddy was controlled by Jewish people, which got him bit, mm. like restricted on on the meta platforms. Instagram, I think, is where that first thing happened. Then he went on Twitter, which he apparently doesn't use a lot, and then doubled down and said, quote, death con three on Jewish people. Uh, and that well, that's kind of restricted death, there. Death con, not death yeah. con, just worth yeah. noting. Because yeah. this is the talking trash segment. Yeah. Do you think he picked three because he wasn't sure if DEF CON one or DEF CON five was the bad one? So he's like, I'm gonna go in between. <laughs> yeah, let's go. One way or another, I'm moved they'll know I'm moved up one. <laughs> yeah. And he was restricted on that, and now he's mixing the issues. So he's saying he was he's implying and the conservative media are implying he was banned. First of all, which he hasn't been, I, at least to my knowledge, he's been restricted. Like he can't post for, at least for now and all that. It would be nice if Twitter, by the way, were more clear about what it is they're doing, which is a whole side conversation. But he's now implying that it was the White Lives Matter message that got him restricted, which is not the case from what we can tell. And so they're saying yeah. this is policing speech. I think... The reasonable thing here for people listening and if this comes up is like, look, you can we can all be you could be a libertarian on speech issues. But I think saying death con three on Jewish people is a clearly threatening message that could endanger people. I think this is not even a close call. Also, um, also, it's really interesting to watch Republican politicians not know what to do because at right. first they're very excited and they <laughs> you know the the rnc i think it was tweets out like elon musk kanye like they're really excited the house judiciary oh that's what it was that. house yeah, judiciary the that's Republican so much worse house judiciary which is even worse kind of there's just some jerk yeah, who said, runs that twitter account because they get in trouble all the time yeah they're rough it's rough. Uh, and and so so they tweet that out. And then a bunch of other Republicans pick that up as like, oh, this is OK now. So like Eric Schmidt, who's running for the Senate here in Missouri, he's the attorney general here. Eric tweets out uh, something about how we got to have a Kid Rock and Kanye West tour, which is I know Eric. And that's just a hilarious thing that I mean, Eric didn't come up with and then had to delete it because he like realized, oh, I've got like Jewish donors calling me who are upset because I want to go to a concert of a guy who's like, when I wake up in the morning, I'm coming for the Jews. <laughs> like they don't know what to do. It's not it's not great. I agree. Yeah. And the Elon Musk jumping in on it and people thanking Elon for Kanye returning to Twitter. I was like, he never bought Twitter. Y'all, though. he doesn't have any stake in Twitter. He's not even really... allowed to tweet about his own company because he lies so much on Twitter. Like, yeah. Well, side note on that, the Musk stuff, it, Jason, it seems like our prediction, you know, from a couple months ago that Musk was screwed in this lawsuit seems to be uh, bearing out because he seems like he's essentially thrown up the white flag over the past week and is at least going to try to buy this company, at least from what we can tell, uh, because it looked like he was going to lose this case. So that will be interesting. So he's going to be like forced into a bad deal to buy Twitter, right? That's what it seems like. And I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that needs to happen, right? Like he needs to deliver on the financing. He's also 
needless to say, not the most trustworthy guy when it comes to this kind of stuff. And all he's done so far is send a letter saying he intends to purchase it. But a lot of experts seem to think that it's more likely than not that he'll purchase it. It's an extremely costly mistake on his end because the interest rates have gone up and he's spent months trashing the company now that he's going to purchase. But it's relevant because this is his world now. His world is is a sort of free speech absolutist world from what we can tell. And now he's going to have to own these hard choices. So from all available evidence, he'd be allowing this kind of stuff, you know, most notably because he encouraged Kanye after the first anti-Semitic thing he said to go onto Twitter. So we don't, I don't, I don't know what Elon's feelings are about the second anti-Semitic thing that Kanye said is, but he seems to think the first one was fine. He seems fine. Elon's very busy. He was meeting with Putin. He's got world <laughs> yeah. plans. He's now apparently a diplomatic ambassador. Yeah, that for was weird. The military. He's he's creating all kinds of jobs for himself. He released a fragrance. Is this he not a, is, a or is that a parody? That's real, right? He really I, did that, that. I believe it is. Yeah, needs some money, but but yeah, like. The dude met with Putin and then like took a position on Ukraine. So yeah, he the Putin thing is fascinating. I'm sh- I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know what we're talking about. Ian Bremmer, who is like as you know buttoned up a foreign policy writer as there is, said that Elon Musk told him he talked to Putin. So I think and and then Musk is claiming that's not true. Now, one of two things seems to be true here: either Elon Musk was lying about having spoken to Putin just to seem like he's smart uh, and connected, or, or he did talk to Putin and he, he's basically lying either way. Like there's no world in which Ian Bremmer is making up this conversation he had with with Musk. So he's either lying about having spoken to Putin or he did speak to Putin and now he's lying about that. I don't know. What a weird guy. I mean, he's he's taken the Trump kind of mantle of like our you know, social media obsession at this point. He might need that Russian oil money to buy Twitter in the end here. I mean, I'm not sure that his American investors are going to be super thrilled with the way that he's been talking about things or supporting this anti-Semitism stuff. He's a person who thrives in chaos. And it's that is the purpose behind a lot of these choices, right? It doesn't always make total sense. The purpose is the chaos. Yeah, that's a great point, though, about could need the investment because then you're looking at one of the biggest uh, platforms in the country getting potentially co-opted by somebody who's got at least a pro-Russia bent, if not some backing. The weirdest thing about all this is to realize that we have a situation now where I would actually prefer Dennis Rodman be the citizen diplomat, (laughs) Yeah, uh, which I I didn't see coming. Yeah. Yeah. Did not see that coming. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Uh, Look, it can be easy if you get into a mode where you're thinking about problems and you've got a lot of problems. And the difficult thing is getting into a problem-solving mode, getting into a solution-oriented mode. Uh, And our sponsor, BetterHelp, can be helpful with that. We know it's really hard sometimes to ask for help. And for some people, it's just logistically challenging. We have a lot of listeners in rural areas where you might not be easy to get to an office. But it's also just hard to... Get out there, put yourself out there physically, you know, going into a waiting room, having people looking at you, et cetera. Uh, that's why we love BetterHelp. It makes it easy. It, it decreases the friction to just asking for help in the first place. And that's why we love it. It's convenient. It's accessible. It's affordable. It's entirely online. And you can get matched with a therapist after just filling out a survey. And if you don't like your therapist and you want to switch, you can switch at any time. And so when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash M54 today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. 
If you need the news, but you also need to feel smarter and calmer, and who doesn't, then you need to get in Andy Slavitt's bubble. Andy is a former White House advisor and the ultimate outsider's insider. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Andy offers his access to leading experts. Join Andy for discussions on COVID, gun violence, climate change, and more. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt is available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get on to the substance. We're going we're gonna to do a tour of the country because we are now less than a month away from the midterm elections. And so we've got a lot of data. We've got Senate and gubernatorial debates happening, congressional debates. But let's start with the macro trends here. It seems like there are two closing messages. By and large. I mean, there's more, but the, the two big closing messages are Democrats seem to be closing on abortion as their main message. And conservatives, Republicans are, are closing on crime. And the Wall Street Journal had a really good article about how all over the country, Republicans are pushing messages related to crime and basically implying that Democrats are soft on crime. They want to defund the police. They're connecting it to immigration. And what's fascinating is that crime has actually decreased, not only over the past few decades, but we know we all know that there was a slight uptick in crime during the pandemic. But according to the FBI, who just released statistics, crime in the US actually decreased in 2021. And the data is somewhat incomplete, but crime in general is down, uh, including robberies going down 8.9%, violent crime going down 1%, but murders are up. So like these splashy things that make the news are up and Republicans are actually running ads side by side on the evening news in a lot of states so that they can create the inference. And this is probably really smart. And there's a lot of polling to suggest that Americans think crime is skyrocketing, even though it's not. Is it, do you think this is going to be enough to overpower the abortion messaging? The FBI study was so interesting to me because, like you said, it's partially incomplete. But what's there is is good to look at when we read in between the lines because we see crime overall is down, but murders are up. But they didn't draw that through line that uh, uh, gun violence is up in some cases, like mass shootings are up. And so that obviously impacts like the overall homicide murder rate. We're having conversations with the TikTok creators and Gen Z and young voters around the idea that the Democrats have selected abortion rights as their core message, the way that Republicans have. But is the Dobbs effect fading? I mean, Roe v. Wade got overturned in June and people were so hot about it. Then we saw Kansas had that election to codify abortion into their state constitution. People came out for it. They voted for it. They made sure that that happened. But now as we're looking at just studying trends and conversations and like how many people are making videos about it and whatnot, we're seeing that that Dobbs effect is really fading. So I am concerned that the Democrats are kind of um, putting all their eggs in this basket, which is an important basket. But I don't know what you guys are seeing on your side. Is the Dobbs effect fading? Robbie, you've been you've been traveling all over the place. I'm curious what you think. Definitely hearing it, but also seeing it in the data as we go through uh, a bunch of states. One thing we will see consistently in every state we talk about is that a month or two ago, the polling data was better, almost to a state. And when it comes to this question of crime, let's start with the state of Ohio, where there was a debate earlier this week between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan, I thought, had an interesting response to the attack on crime, uh, that he's soft on crime. Uh, let's, let's listen to this clip from that debate. The fact that on January 6th, 
We had 140 cops, United States Capitol Police, get injured during the insurrection when they tried to overthrow the government, beat them upside the head with lead pipes, spray them with pepper spray. The one video we saw, the cop got jammed into the, the door, right? J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, J.D., that we wholly reject. You have video posts. Don't even try to deny it. We got, we, got your, we got your Twitter posts and everything else. Everybody's seen it. He said, help these guys with their legal defense fund. Now, you, can you imagine one guy saying out of one side of his mouth he's pro-cop, and out of the other side of his mouth he's raising money for the insurrectionists who are beating up the Capitol Police? The one guy he tried to raise money for got four years in prison. This is ridiculous. I'm not taking a back seat to you. I brought $500 million back to fund police in Ohio. There's a lot of data out there. I think acronym, uh, or, or I think we call it good information now. Um, Tara McGowan's organization was tracking, I think, like all the pro-fund messaging now that you see from Democrats, where they're talking about we're funding police. They talk about the bill that they passed uh, in the House. And this is an interesting add-on to that because, yes, he talks about I've brought money for the police, yada, yada. But he goes on the offense and be like, look, how could you be pro-cop if you're pro-insurrection? What do we think of that? There is a great quote that the character Blanche Dubois gives in the play um, Streetcar Named Desire, where she says, I don't tell the truth. I tell what ought to be the truth. And I think so often this is what we're getting from certain politicians, which is constantly moving the goalposts, constantly changing what ought to be the truth and creating these these fallacies that someone could be the average Joe that was fighting for America and loving the police and backing the blue and backing the military, while at the same time deciding that certain cops are bad, certain cops are part of the establishment, certain cops are protecting Nancy Pelosi, certain cops are protecting this stolen election. And I think they turn those levers on in truly a masterful way where it's we all agree on something, except these times when I'm going to decide to single out or other or only the Capitol Police. Well, those aren't the police. Of course, they're the police or the National Guard. Well, they were under Pelosi's rule and, and you know, they're soldiers. They don't have independent thought. And it's like, but then on the other side, you're like, I support the military and we have the greatest military in the world and we all have independent thought and everybody there is the smartest, greatest guy alive. That ought to be the truth changes so frequently that it is almost impossible to keep up with. And that exhaustion of the audience is very effective at compliance where we're like, okay, well, this is just what the truth is right now. And we're all going to rally around what's being said today, whether that was the same truth that we said yesterday. That's absolutely what they do. What I, I think that this is a very good response to the whole, you know, soft on crime argument. The only thing I worry about with it is what you have there. And I like Tim Ryan a lot, and I think he's running a great campaign. My only concern is that if I'm a swing voter, do I look at that and see a member of Congress seeing the Capitol police as the most relevant police. You know what I mean? Like it's, but it's good that he brings it back around to like, look, I've brought $500 million back here to fund the police. I I think if you're going to do that, you got to, you got to develop that part too. Like you've got to be like, this is the stuff that we've done here. You haven't done any of this, you know? And so I think you've, you've got to land it in Ohio a little harder. You know, maybe the, if I were to give a slight critique on the answer, for what you're saying, Jason, it would be like, you know, and then name the towns, the police departments, if we know what those are, because that can help. You know, he was feisty in this debate. 
Ryan, because, you know, he has an uphill climb here. He's This is a state that uh, Trump won by eight points in 2020. The average in the polling right now in uh, Real Clear Politics has advanced up by 1.4. So Ryan is outperforming, at least as of now, Trump's performance, obviously, like as we, which will be the caveat in most of these states, the polling has generally, in, in most states, except for a few, overestimated Democratic performance historically. So you got to take that into account. But he was feisty and he ended this debate, Ryan, by saying, uh, you know, talking about how Vance was disrespected by Trump. And Ryan said, we need an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. (laughs) I thought that was funny. And he talked about like the people he grew up with and how they wouldn't allow somebody to take their dignity like that. I found that fascinating because it's a state that likes Trump. But you're, you're left thinking like, is this... Is it possible to critique somebody in a state that likes Trump for letting themselves get owned by Trump is such a fascinating test here. To me, this goes to understanding your win scenario, because there's a lot of politicians who would be like, wait, there's a lot of people who like Trump in the state. I can't go that far. But then the really good politicians, are the ones who recognize those people aren't voting for me, if they truly like Trump, like not just like they voted for him, but like they like Trump, they're not voting for me. And if you can become comfortable with that and say, my win scenario is to get all of the people who, even if they voted for Trump or didn't vote for Trump, who don't like or respect Trump to see that they don't want someone who will go on bended knee to Trump. Well, that's recognizing your win scenario and only playing to your win scenario and not trying to hedge with something that's not an actual win scenario. And I thought he was really clever to bring up the town Youngstown in particular and talk about because Youngstown was Jim Traffickin's. He was the original Trump out there, but he was the strong independent figure, whether he was right or wrong. He was the first kind of Trump figure for Ryan to come in and say, yeah, OK, I get you, Youngstown, and I get that you love Trump. Well, Trump doesn't have any respect for this guy. This isn't Trump's guy. This is a guy who kisses Trump's ass and took away his dignity like that. People in Youngstown aren't going to pick a loser. They're not going to pick an ass kiss. They're going to pick somebody who they think is going to be stronger or more Trump-like, whether that is supporting Trump in particular or being willing to make those sort of like knocks on the jaw at someone. I campaigned for Sherrod Brown in Youngstown once, and the only thing the people in the crowd wanted to know was whether I was friends with Tim Ryan because they freaking love Tim Ryan. Like He's charismatic like that, and he's willing to say things like, Trump called you an ass kisser, and it didn't help J.D. Vance that he was standing there with his lips pursed because he was so fuming mad. He didn't ever actually deny it either. I think that was a great moment for Ryan, and I think it's a great moment for Ohio to say like, you know, we're, we're going to pick the guy who we think is the most strong, who's proven to us that they're going to bring back money, jobs and safety and and make Ohio a place that matters. And I'm glad to hear that they think Tim Ryan, you know, is more that guy than J.D. Vance, who is an ass kisser. Well, uh, let's talk about another state uh, that has a, a big GOP push on crime, which is Pennsylvania Senate race. So you've got Oz and Fetterman. Oz has, I think, resuscitated uh, his campaign in part on a crime message. He's talking about Fetterman's time as lieutenant governor and how Fetterman granted clemency to inmates who'd been wrongfully convicted or served you know, overly long sentences. Uh, Fetterman also served on the board of pardons and there's obviously a whole bunch of stuff that a disingenuous campaign could do there. And this is a race that's that's tightening. Uh, this is right now, according to Real Clear Politics, it's a plus 3.7 for Fetterman right now. It was plus eight in August. And Real Clear has an interesting chart 
where you could look at how much polls have overestimated one party or the other at this point in various cycles. And they have polls having historically underestimated GOP vote by six points in Pennsylvania at this point in the cycle. So if you take the 3.7 that Fetterman's up on the average right now and discount it by the historic polling errors, which we we have no idea whether they fix these issues or not, this could be Fetterman down right now. Like that is a possibility. And so this is an example where I love all the cute stuff around like, you know, Fetterman is a, uh, I mean, Oz is a Cowboys fan or whatever, but like Oz, we have to take this seriously. He's closing with a, like a real, whether it's false or not message that voters take seriously. And we have to do more. And I know that Fetterman's doing more, but like it's incumbent on us to do more than just poke fun at how he's an out of state or who's out of touch. I agree. I think the memes went really far in the beginning and now folks are like even tiring of that a little bit. Something I find interesting about the tough on crime message or that Oz is talking so much about the crime in Pennsylvania is Fetterman is leading in the cities and the cities in Pennsylvania are twice as high in crime as urban areas and three times as high as rural areas. So the folks who are going traditionally Republican or traditionally for like a Dr. Oz candidate are living in rural Pennsylvania where crime is very low. This is not something that these folks are facing every single day, but it's been provoking their fear of like, oh, well, crime could come. Right. So I think if Fetterman can dig in, the memes are great. Um, The attack on his health was bullshit. I think that that was a, a low blow. But if he can show that he's strong, he can show that he's recovering. He can show that he is a better truth teller than Dr. Oz. I think we've got Oz on being a habitual liar for all of the different, you know, things that he does. And if he could take this message and make Oz seen as the liar that he is, which is he's trying to tell you folks in rural Pennsylvania that crime is the thing. Well, you're good people. You don't commit crimes in rural Pennsylvania. And what we're, what we've done in the city are these things to bring communities back together. I think he has a better chance, but I do think he has to get a little straight. The cold crime thing to sort of wrap up this part of it. I mean, we know this is their move, right? Like yeah. the economy improved, inflation became less at the forefront of, of voters' minds. And so, and then also Dobbs came in. And so Republicans were like, let's go two directions, which basically are the same direction. We're going to go immigration and we're going to go crime. And because both of them are really just proxy messages for for race. And so that's the direction they've gone. But really what they're both about is fear. It actually reminds me of I don't know if you remember, I'm always willing to pivot to a Sorkinism, the end of the American (laughs) president with Michael Douglas's speech. He talks about his opponent and explains like, here's how you win an election. And it's about making people afraid of something. And whatever your particular problem is, I promise you, Bob Rumson is not the least bit interested in solving it. He is interested in two things and two things only making you afraid of it and telling you who's to blame for it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you win elections. To me, that's the key, right? It's to come back to all these and be like, look, they're not interested in doing anything about it. They're interested in trying to make you afraid of it. Here's what we are doing about this and a bunch of other things. The other thing I'll say about Pennsylvania is that I am actually starting to get worried about the attacks on Fetterman's health. He did his first sit-down interview with NBC, and actually a good friend of mine who's very active in democratic politics, uh, works in democratic politics, sent it to me. And the three things that he wrote in the text were just, I'm going to censor it somewhat, but it was just F, 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 and then the clip. And in it, Fetterman is, he's giving this interview 
And he actually articulates and communicates really well. I mean, there's one part where he gets stuck on a word and he even he even explains like, see, this is what happens. I get stuck on words like this. And then he finds it and he gets back. And that actually is all really endearing and everything. And I don't even think it's all that problematic that, you know, he because he's having auditory processing issues still. He has to sit with the interviewer and then have captioning. So the interviewer talks, but he's able to look at a screen and read. And then there's a delay while he reads it because he's he's having trouble understanding speech, comprehending it. But he makes clear, like, I'm improving all the time. That's all fine. It's actually a clip at the beginning of it where the reporter is introducing the segment to Lester Holt. And she says, And Lester, in small talk before the interview without captioning, it wasn't clear he was understanding our conversation. And it's like stuff like that can be really devastating. And what it makes me worried about is that I don't think obviously Oz or the Republicans have any qualms about taking out of context the fact that this is an ongoing recovery process. But what it makes me think is to your point, V, about making that distinction on honesty and transparency, it makes it all the more important for the Fetterman campaign to continue to be really transparent about the recovery and find a way to allow voters to be in a spot where they're not assessing his recovery, but instead they're rooting for his recovery. I think that's the key. You got to let people in and be like, look at how quickly this guy's improving and look at how quick, look at how hard he's working at it. Circle this date on the calendar. I believe it's October 25th is the debate between Fetterman and Oz. I think no hyperbole to say that I think the future of the U.S. Senate, the Democratic control could be decided on that date. Republicans know they need this seat if they're going to get to 51. Voters deserve to know that they have a senator who can do the job. We don't want anybody discriminated against based on their health. What he needs to do is just communicate what I, from what I understand from people inside of this campaign, that this is a guy who could do the job, right? Like that's all voters are going to want to know. And that will take the air out of any devastating attacks against him. And he's going to be using the captioning technology during the debate. That's one of the conditions of the debate. The upside to that is, is that they're going to see that he can clearly communicate, but they're going to see him have to pause and read it. It's it's a it's a risk. With a young voter, though, I'm wondering, and I'll be live on TikTok when this is going on, so we'll be able to find out. But TikTok has become a place for Gen Z to gather and talk about politics a lot. And one of the main mandatories now is to caption your videos because of how many people have audio processing disorder or just prefer the ADHD stuff, like all of that. So I think it's so normalized for young people to watch Netflix with captions, to do this with that. I think if he shows young people that this is an accessibility feature and this is something that he's glad to be the first person to take the heat for to champion so that future people can feel comfortable using this technology. This should be normalized. I think we've got is a good thing going there. And I also think he should take maybe a little bit of time to study uh, the governor of Maryland. Larry Hogan had cancer when he was in office. And I mean, Democrats and Republicans alike were rooting for him to get better because he was sharing the journey. You were seeing him and his strength and he got reelected. So we've seen it happen before. And I think that um, I think they got to lean into it and show if Oz makes fun of it or if he hems and haws or doesn't have patience really this may be the way to get young voters here's what attention. The, here's what I'm worried about from Oz's campaign, which has not shown itself to be super competent. But if they were, and so you always have to assume the best of your enemies, is I think what we could see on October 25th is Oprah Oz. I think he could get up there and he could be like humanizing and kind and totally flip the script 
And that would be the smart thing to do. And that would be a little bit of jujitsu because that even if Fetterman comes across in that debate uh, in a way that inspires sympathy, Oz could massively elevate his popularity right now. He's like in the doldrums in terms of like just voters views of him. He could he could come across as like really magnanimous and kind. Uh, and that would be the smart thing to do in that debate and let all of his minions attack Fetterman, but have Oz come across as human. That's my worry. He could use the fact that he's a doctor in doing it. That's the that's the thing, right? In a very seemingly kind, but actually devious way, explain why in your medical opinion, <laughs> he's not able, but how you're really rooting for him. And you do believe he's going to make a full recovery but it, you just think it's probably going to take approximately six years. I yeah. mean, like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that well, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. I think, you know, that's when I might watch live. I think that that's so much at stake there. Last week, I was talking about the fact that even though I was trying to fast uh, the day of Yom Kippur, I did take my athletic greens. And then I got a text message from my dad who listens to the show. And he was like, not approving. Uh, and so I was chastised, rightfully so. Uh, and so I'm just going to say, love the product. Don't actually know God's position on it. If for some reason you don't know what this stuff is, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, uh, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens to help you start your day off right. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which is really important, especially right now, this time of year, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Let's move to another race, which I think is perhaps the scariest, which is the Nevada Senate race. And this is, it's the Lixalt, Lixalt uh, versus Cortez Masto. This is Laxalt. a- Laxalt. Laxalt. Uh, this is one uh, that Real Clear Politics has uh, going for the Republicans 1.7 um, in a state that has underestimated Democrats- Historically, actually, by 0.8. Uh, so this is, you know, a nail biter, but trending in the wrong direction. It has 538 has it 51 percent likelihood going to the Dems. So basically 50-50. And that was at 60 percent a month ago. And the Sisolak is also in trouble, the governor. And this is a state where all eyes are on the Hispanic community there and trends that aren't so great for Democrats uh, with, you know, small C conservative Hispanics. And, you know, um, do you have any, you know, any reason for optimism in this state? Nevada yeah. is such a wonderful, rich state that unfortunately people, you know, outside the state relegate to like Las Vegas. Right. And it's so hard to call. It, it, it's one of the states that's near impossible to call because it's gone either way, because while uh, you have a good set of conservatives and retirees and folks who have gone out there, they also uh, aren't as motivated by the evangelical response of, let's say, the South or the Midwest. Right. I mean, Dennis Hoff, who ran the Bunny Ranch, won as a Republican, his seat for the Nevada Assembly after he had died. Like, that's how much they they loved him. So I think it's. 
ah, Nevada is like one of the absolute hardest and it's one that I'll be watching, but I just it's impossible to call. You just really never know who's going to show up that day. There are reasons uh, for concern and reasons for optimism. The reason we'll start with reasons for concern. One, it is a question of like in the post Harry Reid era, is that machine, that turnout machine still there? The, you know, the culinary union. And I think that it still is. I've actually done a, a fair amount of politics in Nevada for two reasons. One, Let America Vote had a big operation in Nevada in 2017 and 2018. Like we had a bunch of people on the ground. Several of our staff like still live and work there. Uh, and also because it was an early primary state. And so I was spending a lot of time there. And so I've I've got a good amount of experience there with it. And there really is a vibrant turnout machine. So to me, I think that the concern about the small C conservative Hispanic voter there is less to me a concern than how sharp is the turnout machine at the moment. And then the other concern is just about, so, you know, I ran for Senate in 2016, the same year that Catherine Cortez Masto was running in Nevada, and we were both in these very competitive races. So we ended up traveling the country and going to a lot of fundraisers together. And I got to know her pretty well. I really like her. She's really smart and a really good senator. Um, and the reason that she's a really good senator is because she's really smart and she has this, you know, great prosecutor background that's like very thoughtful. Um, and she she comes across one of the reasons I like her and sort of was initially almost intimidated by her a little bit is that she comes across like somebody who would have been like, like a, a character on like a nineties cop show, like a detective, like she's got a real nineties NYPD blue female detective vibe. And it's like very, very Olivia Benson. Yeah. yeah. And like in person or yeah, like, like law and order or like, yeah. you know, like in person, it's very effective and very cool. And but through the lens of, you know, broadcast media, you know, her full personality doesn't come through. It's kind of muted. And and I do think that that is a little bit of a of a concern in a close race with Adam Waxalt, who's proven himself as a campaigner in the state. Um, he successfully won office. I mean, he beat Ross Miller for attorney general. And Ross was secretary of state at the time. Ross was like tailor made for the state. His dad was governor. He's a big, you know, powerful dude who's like handsome. Like he's right out of an action movie. He literally was a UFC fighter and Laxalt beat him. So it's a real fight. And mm -hmm. I, I am real worried about it. There's reasons to be optimistic, like the turnout mechanisms there, but there are reasons to be concerned too. So people should pay a lot of attention to it. Win or lose here. Let's really get this right heading into the next election. Like there needs to be more sophisticated messaging to the Hispanic community. And too many candidates that I've seen think that immigration is the only thing that members of the Hispanic community talk about. But they're like any, you know, like anybody else, they're complicated. They care about the economy. They care about, you know, whatever it is. They're not just one identity, right? But let's move to a governor's race. We could talk about a lot of governor's races, but one in particular is, you know, I hate to just keep piling on the scary ones, but this is Carrie Lake versus Katie Hobbs. This is one that has Lake and Hobbs basically neck and neck. It's plus 0.7 in the RCP average to Lake. This is a state that also historically underestimates GOP about, about 2.9 points. So like you could probably think that Lake is probably slightly ahead by a point or two. And Lake is a full-blown election denier, um, a former TV news anchor, very charismatic. Politico had a uh, Elaine or Elaine Godfrey in Atlantic had a long article about 
Lake and just how good Lake is as a candidate, even as she's like insane and, and says terrible things. Jason, you probably know Hobbs, right? I would imagine from the Secretary of State. Tell us about what you know about this race and Hobbs. Katie Hobbs is a very adept campaigner. People are probably familiar with her because uh, after the 2020 election, she was on MSNBC a lot, kind of helping people feel more calm and and really defending her state's election process and having to from all sorts of attacks. So she's pretty adept at that stuff. There's been some controversies surrounding her that that have been unhelpful on the left, having to do with uh, you know stuff, racial equity hiring and that kind of thing um, on staffing. Um, you know, I know I know Katie a little bit, which is to say, you know, I'm 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 just basically very good friends with Ruben Gallego and Adrian Fontes, and that has afforded me the opportunity to like have a couple drinks with Katie. Uh, and look, you know, she's super competent. I haven't seen her campaign very much, and so people in Arizona have a much closer to the ground view of like how effective she is as a campaigner. I know on the Carrie Lake side, she is one of these candidates who is not really identifying as Republican, but is openly identifying as ultra MAGA, the new ultra MAGA distinction. And like you said, she was a news anchor. She has garnered a lot of trust through decades of being the news reporter in Arizona. People trust her. They, she's seen them through difficult times in the past. That news anchor to this is really powerful. And we've made celebrities out of news anchors, right? So all the folks who watch Tucker Carlson really like her. All the folks who uh, read Breitbart News really like her because she's reaffirming all of these things that those folks are saying and that they see as the truth. Um, Something I think is interesting about her is she doesn't uh, even really have like your traditional campaign stuff. So when we talk about like who's a good campaigner, she's kind of like thrown that all out the window. She's got a bunch of young guys who work on her campaign who are equally ultra MAGA. I was reading in Politico, one of them has MAGA tattooed on the inside of his lip. Which like, commitment. that's a dedication. Okay. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about a person who's going to put their whole soul's mission into this. It's these folks for better or for worse. And so again, I think we're going to be looking at will Arizona voters turn out to keep abortion access. That's a topic that is flip-flopping over there constantly. They just got abortion access back because an appellate judge like reversed the ban again. Will they show up for the issue over the candidate or will the ultra MAGA, charismatic, trusted news anchor with an army of young guys with tattoos of MAGA on the inside of their lip? Listen to how excited I am talking about it. And I don't support her. There is an energy around it. And I wonder if the issue of reproductive health is as energizing as her campaigning has been. One factor here, I mean, because what we've just talked about, right, is we've talked about um, three Senate races and then now a governor's race. And the reason for optimism, I think, uh, in a governor's race like this is that when you when you have somebody like a J.D. Vance in Ohio, who is clearly an extremist, or let's use Arizona, where you have Blake Masters in Arizona running for the Senate, and he's just as extreme as mm-hmm. Kerry Lake, I'm sure you can make the argument that he's not as charismatic. He's not a known uh, quantity like like she is for so many years, but he's just as extreme. Now he's running for the Senate. So you would think that people would be like, oh, I like this kind of, you know, I don't care that he's so extreme for the Senate. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas for governor, what you hope is in your back pocket is people do have a sense for this person has to actually be in charge of some things. And this, mm-hmm. I think we talked about this last week, which is that people are much more willing 
for congressional for House and Senate races to be like, ah, yeah, okay, this person is incompetent or this person is t- truly nuts. But whatever, I just I have an outcome I'm trying to get to, which is a certain level of partisan control. For governor, it generally is different, and so the hope is is that over the home stretch here, that people go. Mm, what if we have a power outage like Texas? What if we have, you know, can Carrie Lake manage that situation? So that's the hope. And I think the difference we see between Blake Masters and Carrie Lake is also I was on the Girl in the Gov podcast last week and we were talking about this new term called gender washing, which is where the far right um, will put up a female candidate because they think in doing so, her extremism is kind of blunted by the idea that it's a female candidate and we should trust women. Um, so the extremism, even though she and Blake Masters are saying the same things, it does come off harder when he's saying it because he's not a woman. There's not any built in implicit bias in the minds of people that this is a person who's a caretaker or who gets things or who's going to be a better organizer. Gender washing. And this is what they were saying about the election in Italy and how uh, Georgia Maloney got in was she was saying the same things as the fascists uh, who were running in her party, but she was saying it while wearing a pastel suit and being very pretty. And does that make a difference? Is that a tactic? Is that a strategy? Is that power? It's not unlike running a very liberal veteran male. You're exactly right. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't really knock it. No, I'm just saying it's like it's good when you know that term. Now I like can't unsee it in everything we do. I'm like, oh, my God, we're gender washing. It is worth mentioning that uh, the governor of Arizona has significant role in the elections. Uh, Tim Miller, who is just on this podcast said, quote, on a scale of a one to 10, this is a 13 level threat. Uh, I was listening to Hacks on Tap podcast this morning. Axelrod had some pretty, I think, scathing reviews of of Hobbes's campaign. Uh, And I I don't know as much as he knows about this, but he said as a practitioner, it's been frustrating to see her leaving so much on the table. He was particularly critical of the sort of above the fray nature of Hobbes's campaign as he saw it, where, where Hobbes has not has said she will not be debating Carrie Lake, who's going to be showing up, I think, to an empty stage, which I think anybody in politics knows that's a really dangerous scenario. I haven't been as deep in this race as others, but I would say like the 24 hours of of looking under the hood on this one makes me a little bit nervous. It's very different from the approach that uh, Adrian Fontes is taking running to replace Katie Hobbs as secretary of state, where he's 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 going at Mark Fincham at every step. And Fincham is another guy who's crazy right MAGA, was at January 6th, all that stuff. And Adrian, who listeners to this show will know because he's been on a couple of times, he's going directly at it and and trying to debate Fincham as much as possible. I think everyone should have to debate. It makes me nuts when Pelosi refuses to debate in all of these years, too. I mean, it's it's part of the the fun. You got to show up. Yeah. I think we need question time in, yeah. in Congress. Like, I I I love watching question time in Parliament, and like it would be incredible. I know this has been a little bit of doom and gloom. Let's end with a little bit of optimism here. So 530, I know I'm like the numbers guy here, and I I put so much faith in these numbers, but 538 has Democrats at a 66% chance of holding the Senate and a 30% chance of holding the house. We always knew the house was going to be harder. Dave Wasserman, who's the person I trust the most on this kind of stuff from Cook Political Report, has said that the house is shifting 
ever so slightly closer to Democrats in the past few weeks for reasons I don't fully understand. And he's he's been changing the ratings of individual races to make more races lean Democratic or toss up than existed before. That's a pretty good sign. And I, and I know that there's at least a shot there. If you go into a midterm election when your party controls the White House, where the only reason you have the majority in the Senate is because the vice president is you know, a member of your party and you can hold the Senate, I think that's an enormous victory. I think it's going to be interesting to see how Gen Z shows up, because what I'm seeing on TikTok and in the circles that I'm in with the Gen Z for Change folks, they have put a lot of effort into making sure that young people know that every single seat is up for grabs in Congress and that this is a huge change opportunity for them. And I think that the the major polling organizations don't tend to focus on this new media. And so I don't know if they're in touch with what that messaging is exactly. And it's not something you can necessarily like historically poll against. There are a lot of surprises. So optimistically, I believe that Gen Z and the power of the TikTok communities that they've built and the ways that it's such an empathetic and energized generation who really has the most on the line right now when we're talking about reproductive health and we're talking about gay rights and we're talking about student loan forgiveness and future forgiveness and whatnot and jobs. These are the kids who need to show out. And I think that they will. And I think that we'll be pleasantly surprised by how many more young people are voting and how maybe that'll give them a little bit more respect going into the presidential cycle to say, you know, we have to look at Gen Z and young millennials and we can't predict what they're going to do. All right. If there's anything in this episode that you like, didn't like, just something you think we should have talked about, whatever, give us a call, leave us a voicemail, and we may answer it on the air. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. Same goes for emails. M54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Uh, you can find V at it's at Under the Desk News on TikTok and Instagram. And also, uh, make sure to check out the V Interesting podcast, which you can get wherever you get this podcast. V, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a great time. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesoa Agbenayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.